to you. Back in our study on John's Gospel, Gospel of Signs, and we're in chapter 20 today. Section 11 is, is what the worksheet says. I just divided it up as it came. We're about to finish up this study. Uh, before we get into the worksheet, however, I thought I would show you some pictures from our trip last year. I may have told you there are two locations in the city of Jerusalem or around the city of Jerusalem where it is claimed that Jesus was crucified. Uh, one of them, I've shown you pictures before for different reasons, but I don't think that's the place because nothing seems to really fit. But this place fits. This is the garden tomb, and it's in a different spot. The other place is, uh, it is approved by the Catholic Church, the other place is. And so Catholic people flow there from all over the world, and it's crowded, and it's noisy, and it's uh, decorated with a, a chapel with all kinds of ornamentation in it. And it's just very, it would be very strange to almost all of us to see a place like that when you think of the place of crucifixion of being so simple. But then there's the garden tomb that is not crowded. There's not throngs of people trying to get there. And everything about the garden tomb says this looks very much like the place. So nobody knows for sure, but uh, I'll show you some pictures of it this morning. And this is what you see when you get there. This is a quote from Matthew 16 where the angels are telling the women, do not be afraid, you've come looking for Jesus and he's risen. So we've got passages of scripture there. Here's another one. This one happens to be from the 19th chapter of John where we were studying last week. Very nicely done, very well decorated, clean, um, walkways, railings, everything you would expect. But nothing seems to take away, in my estimation, from the spirit of the place. If you go there, I think you'll be as impressed as we were. There are two pictures of the same place. This is the opening of the tomb that, uh, oh, I meant to have a, a laser pointer, but it wouldn't matter because that, that's all right because it's, it's way down there and I don't think it'll work anyway. You see the, the door in the picture on your, where you're looking at it, on your right, yeah. <clears throat> that's my dad forgot I had this picture. He was there in the 50s. He was an uh, Air Force pilot and flew some dignitaries over there. And so while they were hobnobbing with uh, the hobnobbers, he went around and looked at some of the sites. And this is where he was back then. And as you can tell, it doesn't look much different. The other view is, of course, from a, a little more of a distance. But it's the same, same door, same opening, same place. No, you, you can get access. Matter of fact, the next couple of pictures I'll show you, we, we just go right in. They control that. They've got somebody there. You can only take, is it three people in at a time, something like that, because it's small. It's not real large inside, but it's like a small room, which is what a, what a tomb was back in the day. And there's a little closer view, and you can see uh, it's got nice stairs made so you can ascend up to it. Where those flowers are, on the left, 
If you look real close, you can see there is a stone track, like a trough. And that's where they believe the, the stone was that sealed the tomb. A round stone shaped, carved like a big circle, a big wheel. And it was rolled back in that trough and then rolled forward to cover the door. And that's why that they believe is there. Which, one more thing that fits because it's scripture says they rolled a stone in front of the tomb and they sealed it so that anybody would know if it had been tampered with. Here's a couple of pictures inside. Now you can see the one on the left. There is, this is, you, we put our hands through the bars because they've got bars up so nobody can actually go to the spot, uh, probably because damage would be done. Somebody would do something to it. But you can see that uh, that insignia on the back, a cross. Somebody's painted something on the wall. And you can see where that is on the picture on the right, if you look close enough. That's uh, my lovely wife and my grandson Liam. And then that's Miss Amanda in the yellow dress. She was She's a member of the church up at Edmond. She was with us on the trip. But you can get three people, four people in there, maybe at a time. Must have been four because somebody's taking the picture from behind them. It's probably me. But that's what it looks like inside the tomb. And, of course, the, the practice was you prepare a body for burial, you lay it in the tomb, and then as time would go on, all of the soft tissue would decay away, and you would go in and collect the bones that were left. And you would put those bones in a box, and that box is called an ossuary. And then you'd be able to lay another body inside that tomb. And if you ever do any research on uh, burials in this area, that's probably what you'll run into. And you'll find that people did that because that's, that's just the way it was, and you had a place. The ground's very hard. Here, if you want to bury somebody, uh, it's even in country songs. You just get a shovel, and you go out there, and you dig a hole, and you... You just bury You can't do that over there, not, not quite so easily. So they would carve out a room in stone, and they would lay their dead in there, and when they would decay away, they would collect their bones, put them in a box called an ossuary, and then lay somebody else in there. And this was a new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had it carved out for his family and, and then used it, uh, allowed Jesus to use it. Uh, of course, you always make the joke, well, he only needed it for a couple of days, and then he'd give it back. But who knows what happened with it after Jesus came out. They just set those in a, in a place uh, revered, kind of like we would do with an urn. When you have someone cremated, you take the ashes, put them in an urn, and then you put the urn up on the mantle. Or... What's that now? Well, I don't know if they'd take them home and put them on the mantle, because according to Jewish law, you touch anything dead, you're, you're unclean, you're ceremonially unclean, but they would, they would probably leave the boxes in there. There might have been places for them to be stored, but that's... Well, they would put the bodies in a place like this until they decayed. And then they would collect the bones. And, and the bones, you know, the bones are a lot smaller. You can put all the bones in a much smaller box. And that's, that's how they did it. This, I even hesitated showing you this because without being there, it's hard to get a, an idea for what this is all about. 
The scripture says that the tomb was in the garden, and the garden was adjacent to Golgotha, adjacent to the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified. So they very were able to very quickly remove him from that place and get him to this place because they were close by. And right next to the garden tomb is this area. These pictures are, or this picture is taken from a kind of an overlook because that area is now built up. There's a highway going through there, and right next to the highway is this parking lot where these buses are. And what you're looking at, because this looks kind of weird, this is a picture of a picture. Down in the bottom right corner is a picture. That thing, I believe, was taken back in the 1930s to show what this hill looked like back then. And if you look real close, I don't know if you're able to see it. You can kind of make out two dark spots that almost look like eyes, and that does look very much like a skull. So... This seems like a likely place to be the place, or it seems like a likely... All, all indications are that this was the place. That's a little bigger now. Oh, great, thanks. Ain't technology great? Nice to have somebody who knows how to do it, too. So that's, that's right there adjacent to the garden tomb, but you can't get to it. Now, if you make it smaller again... Back to the original size, there we go. This grating right above the picture, that's there, and you're also looking through uh, bulletproof glass because people have been known to go by this area on the highway and throw things up in this area because they don't like Christians. And so that's all there for defensive purposes, and it makes it very difficult to take a good picture of the area. So that's. I just thought I would show you these things to give you an idea of what there is and what it's like to see it as it is today. And if you want to see these again, I'll be glad to show them to you later. But there we have it, the garden tomb. All right. We can switch that off if you like, and we'll go to our worksheet. Welcome to class, everybody, and welcome to anybody who's watching us online. Glad to have you with us. All right, chapter 19, closed with Jesus' body being placed where's the D in placed? How many times have I read this? I see last week I was talking about this, about the, the lack of errors in in the original writings and I can't even do a worksheet. It's not even two pages. And I first line, there's a mistake. Anyway they close with Jesus' body being placed in a tomb on the day of preparation. Chapter 20 begins recording events on the blank day of the week. First day of the week. So he's put in the tomb on the day of preparation. The resurrection is on the first day of the week. John tells us that Mary, and this is her other name, Magdalene, there were a lot of Marys. Mary Magdalene first came to the tomb. She saw that the blank had been removed. Stone had been removed. So she ran to, who'd she run to? Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that I believe to be John. We'll talk more about that later. 
Mary told them that someone had blanked the Jesus' body, taken, that's what she thought had happened, from the tomb. The two disciples blanked to the tomb, ran to the tomb. So they're excited. What's going on? They ran to the tomb. Outrunning Peter, the first disciple, only blanked in. He just looked in. He stopped and he looked in. He wasn't going in. And now you have an idea. If, if that is, in fact, the place, you can understand how he would stop at that door and look in to see what's going on in there. Outrunning Peter, the first disciple only looked in and saw the blank blank. The linen cloths or linen wrappings. Remember how many pounds of spices and myrrh and aloes they had? A hundred pounds. What they would do is take those linen cloths, those strips of linen cloths, soak them in that stuff and wrap the body. And this was their way of, uh, of preserving the body as best they could. What else did they have besides myrrh and aloes? That spices. What would the spices be for? The text doesn't say. But history tells us that was to help the smell. So that's what was there. And he's seeing the linen wrappings. And Peter ran past and he saw the wrappings. But also the blank blank. The face cloth that had been. It had been laid aside but it was rolled up. In other words it it wasn't just thrown about. It was rolled up and set aside. By itself. When the other disciples saw this, he blanked. He believed. But they still did not comprehend the scriptures saying that Jesus must rise from the dead. The two simply went to their own. Just go home. That's where you go. When you don't know what to do or what to think, you just go home. Now think about what this is telling us. Billy? Billy? Where it talks about that going to be the Let me get the verse here. Uh, Luke You know you had it. So you're saying... He had told them several times. The, the one who records it the most is Mark. Mark records at least seven times, Jesus tells them. Is it seven? Nine. I go back and check that, but I, yeah, maybe it is nine. So he's told them several times, but they don't get it. Mary, what does she think happened? She thinks somebody took the body. 
They're not coming to the grave saying, this is the day he said he'd raise, and we know he's going to be raised. This, these are folks who didn't see this coming, even though they had been told over and over and over again. And I read about this, and I think these are real disciples, but they still don't, they still don't comprehend. Now, what did it say about John when he saw the linen wrappings and the face cloth? It says he believed, but I thought he was already a believer. How does that work? That's what happens with us. We get constant confirmation, and, and the more it's confirmed, the more we believe, even though we start believing. Remember that young man, young man, the, the man who was asking Jesus to help one of his loved ones, and Jesus said, I, I will if you believe, and what did the man say? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. So it's like... You know, you, you go to the fair and you get that sledgehammer and you hit that thing and you're trying to get that doohickey to go up and hit the bell and go ding. And maybe it only goes up about a third of the way. It always hits the bell when I do it. But, but you know, you're watching somebody else. <laughs> it only goes up a little way. It's like, okay, I, I got to have help to get up there all the way. And I, I think that's where we are, isn't it? You and I believe, we believe in Jesus, but how much do we believe? Well, we don't know because our faith hasn't been tested in certain circumstances that might, might really make us question how much do we believe. But everything that we're seeing in John is leading to belief. All of these signs, this doesn't say that that was a sign, but to John and to Peter, those wrappings, that empty tomb, that was a sign. That's like a... a a lit up sign that says Jesus was telling you the truth when he said he would raise. This is what the scriptures were meaning when he said that. So, yes, this is a sign. Believe it. Preston? We're living it again. Just like they lived it then, although we're kind of outside looking in, but yet we're the new dispensation. We're the, you know, the, the, the uh, curtain has been torn. You know, there's just so many things that's happened. It's a new day. Jesus is raised from the dead. We were, <clears throat> we went yesterday to help my mom, and I just love to listen to her. <clears throat> and we were going to eat, and she's telling about it. after her and my mom. My mom and dad got married. They had a couple of the two older boys, and then she was pregnant with my sister. Of course, I wasn't. I wasn't even there yet, and. She said, and I told Earl, she said, Earl, we need to go to church. I'm Baptist. He, he said, I, the only place I'm going is church Christ. He said, and he, I know that that's what we believe. And she said, okay. So they, they, they went to start going to church and they got baptized. But the comment that she made, and then, and then she said, I think I was pregnant with your sister. She's been baptized twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just think about how precious that comment was, you know, that I got to hear that. I never thought of that. And how precious what we're hearing and seeing in the Bible is. And, and that's just a side comment. I'm sorry. It, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it is a privilege. We... And I kind of wrote about this in the, in the bulletin article, and I might wind up talking about it to some degree in the sermon this morning. But we talk about taking things for granted. I, I don't know that we take as many things for granted as we 
think we do. It's just that we are so overwhelmed with blessings, you can't even see them all or be aware of them all or count them all. So, yeah, we're going to miss a bunch of blessings. And God just gives them to us on such a regular basis, we just get used to it. I'm not saying it's okay to forego Thanksgiving. That's not what I mean at all. I'm just saying that if we... If you stop and think someday, wow, I've never thanked God for this or for that. Well, no wonder, because you've got all this other stuff that you have been thanking him for, that you're aware of. There's so many things. He's just overwhelming us with blessing. And to see, to, to be able to sit here and read this. How many people in history have been able to read truth like we are able to read truth today? When was the printing press invented Yes, 1400s, Gutenberg. What's the first thing he printed on it? Bible. That tells you something about the, the impact of the gospel in 15th century Europe. So, and I know, yes, people were writing things out, but they wrote it all out by hand, and everything was expensive. You can go to Walmart and get you a Bible for $5 today, and you can go to the dollar store and get you one for less than that. The availability of truth to read these things, to have our, our minds exposed to them, is something we don't ever want to take lightly. It's, it's really huge. And when you read about people, I was listening to a, an interview with a young lady who got out of North Korea. And she said, we thought, we thought China was going to be heaven because we could see lights over there. We didn't have lights in North Korea. And she says, I didn't leave North Korea. I didn't escape and risk my life trying to get out of North Korea for, for freedom. I didn't care anything about freedom. I was looking for a bowl of rice because we were starving. And so you, you read about people in situations like that in the world, and you think, man, we got it good. We really have it good. Got a lot to be thankful for. All right, here we are. Next section, chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Mary stood outside the tomb and was blank, weeping, looking into the tomb. She saw two angels sitting where Jesus had been laid. And from the text, I'm not sure that she knew they were angels. They apparently just appeared as men. Another one of the other gospel writers said, young man. Turning around, she saw Jesus, but did not... Did not know it was him and supposed him to be the gardener. Jesus spoke her name and she then knew it was him. At this point, Mary apparently grabbed hold of Jesus, but he told her not to. Why do you believe he told her that? That, that's what he has said. I, I, I have not yet ascended to my father, but what, what does that mean? Don't hold on to me, Mary. I haven't yet ascended to my father. Well, can't I hold on to you until you do ascend to your father? What, what, what is going on here? I preached, and he has gone through whatever the process is of God's salvation, and now here he has shed his precious blood for all of man. I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I'm just trying to look at the big picture and mm -hmm. see that... You know, he is the high priest and he's going to go to his father. And if we look at the Old Testament about how the high priest had to be clean and could only enter into 
once a year, and I was just wondering maybe what type of a parallel there is, and maybe that's why he told her that. Interesting thing to me is there's nothing in the text to explain this. What did he mean by that? And so we read this, and we look at it, and we go, what's that mean? And I have an opinion. You probably have an opinion. But none of us can really say that it's right. This is what I think he's talking about. What was he doing leading up to his crucifixion but telling them about it and preparing them for it? And it's like now they've seen him dead. They saw him on the cross. He hung there for six hours. Were they present when that soldier thrust a spear up in his side and the blood and the water? It's like, oh, that's, there's no coming back from this. It's over. And then they lay him in the tomb. And this is the third day. And he's back. And it's like he's saying, Mary, I'm not staying. Don't be holding on to me like I'm staying because I'm not staying. I'm going to the Father. I'm, I'm going to ascend. I think that's what he was doing. I don't think he was saying, you're not allowed to hold on to me. You're not allowed to touch me. Because remember later, he'll, he'll be in the room. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not allowed to do that, are we? And he'll tell the apostles, reach over here and touch me. Give me a piece of fish so I can eat some fish. And you can see, this is me. I'm not a spirit. This is my body. Billy? Right. And and he knew people's hearts. He knew what was in Mary's heart if she was saying, Man, I'm hold, I'm holding on you, I'm never letting you go again. Just like you would if you ever thought something was happening to one of your kids and then you finally get get your hands on your kid and you hug them up tight. I'm never letting go of you again. Well you are, you're gonna let him go. Pretty soon you're gonna be saying, Get out of here, go play outside. But but initially you have this idea. Um, 16.7, where he talks about, unless I leave, God will not send the Holy Spirit. Unless I wonder if maybe that's what. I don't know. So in, in John 14, it talks about, he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Right. He said, I haven't gone there yet. Hold on. Like when, like you said, he's preparing them. The whole time, it's like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare a place for you. And when I do come back for you, I'm taking you with me. Right. So all the time he's preparing them because they're he's the Messiah, and the last thing they would want is for him to leave and then be without the Messiah. And he says, I'm I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you comfortless. I'm sending you a comforter. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. He's gonna guide you all the truth in all truth, and he's gonna bring back to your memory everything I've talked to you. So you're not gonna be alone, you're not gonna be orphans. And so here's Mary grabbing hold to him, and he's saying, Mary, don't, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended, but, but I am, is, is what I think he's saying. I could be completely wrong about that, but you, you have a formulated opinion in your mind, perhaps, and I've got one. I get to tell you mine because I'm the teacher. All right, let's go back to the worksheet. We've got another question here in this section. What did Jesus tell Mary to tell his brethren? (coughs) Excuse me. It's verse 17. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, 
I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. But now, how long would it be before he would ascend? Forty days. Another, another month. But it's like he's telling them ahead of time, okay, this, this is what's coming. This is what's happening. I, I told you all along that I was going to be arrested and crucified and buried. And now I'm telling you I'm not staying And to me, without total faith in Jesus, this would be so frustrating. Because you want things to go your way. And my way would be, I don't want him to leave at all. John 14, I don't want you to go. Yeah, I want you to prepare a place for me, but at the same time, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want you to prepare a place, but I don't want you to leave. Now he's, he's back. We thought we lost him. He was dead. He was in the tomb. We saw him dead. And now he's back. I don't want to lose him. And he's telling me, you're going to go away? Yeah, he's going away. Because the whole point of his coming was not to make things right for us here. The whole point of his coming was so that we would be able to get out of this place. If you'll excuse the, the expression, get out of this hell hole. What's going on in this world is not from heaven. And there's only one other place it could be from. This world is a mess. And who's the ruler of this world? Who did Jesus say was the ruler of this world? Satan. And so God has sent his son into this world to make a way for us to get out. And that's why he said, I'm going to prepare a place. He didn't say, I'm going, but I'm coming back to make this place your home. He didn't say that. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I do, I'm coming back and I'll receive you to myself. A lot of stuff in this right here. All right, section 19 to 30. John writes that it was evening on blank day. And you got to read the whole thing. Evening on blank day, the blank day of the week. He says this day. He's been talking about things that happened on this day. And he says, oh, this, this day, this same day, which was the first day of the week. It's like the Holy Spirit says, John, make it clear to anybody reading this that these things are happening on the first day of the week. By the way, that's the same thing I told Matthew, same thing I told Luke, same thing I told Mark. They all four made it clear this is the first day of the week. The disciples had gathered, but the doors were why were they shut? Afraid of the Jews. Jesus came into their midst and he said, blank be with you. Peace. 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 Was he just blowing smoke? If he says, peace be with you, can we have peace? Yes, we can. Against our emotions perhaps against our fears perhaps but we can have peace when jesus says have peace he's not blowing smoke he's saying you can have peace i'm here he then blanked on them breathed on them saying receive the blank blank holy spirit remember genesis chapter 2 God formed a man from the dust of the earth, and then what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit is. It is life. Jesus said, if if you recall, back in chapter 6, I think it's verse 63, the words that I speak unto you are spirit and they are life. So what Jesus teaches us is spirit and life. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It it has this power of, of regeneration. That's what Paul talked about with Titus. We're regenerated, made new. Thomas, also called Didymus, was not blank on this occasion. He wasn't present. He wasn't there. And blank to believe until he had, he refused to believe until he had seen the blank of the nails, imprints of the nails, and put his hand into his side. Eight days later, Jesus again comes into their midst while the doors are So twice, John is telling us, the doors were shut, but Jesus, he's there. So he's got a body, and it's his body, but he's able to do things with that body that he couldn't do before. When, I probably should have started that on the other page. When Thomas saw Jesus' wounds, he said, my blank and my blank, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have blanked me, you have blanked. You've seen me, you have believed. He then said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who is that? That's us. A very, very limited number of people saw Jesus in the flesh. And Jesus says, doesn't matter. I, I didn't come for the people who were here when I came. I came for everybody. And so blessed are you, Thomas. You've seen me and you believe. Blessed are those also who have not seen. Blessed are those Okies in 21st century Oklahoma who, who meet in my name to worship me and my father and who do the things that I taught them to do. Blessed are them because that's their faith and they haven't seen any of this. They just read about it and they believe it. That's us. Charles? I, something happened recently that I think would help, would, would be part of the conversation on this. Okay. Uh, I was talking to Isaac and he had a very good question about something that I've struggled with for years. Where he said, why would we need all the faith? Why can't Jesus just come down and talk to us right now? Because he could, right, Dad? And I said, well, you're right, son. You're right. He could if, if he wanted to. He's God. But let's think about it a different way. And I said, what, what would happen if you came home from school and I came up to you with a big bag full of cash, million dollars cash. And I handed it to you. I said, this is yours for free. What would you think? And he'd say, well, Dad, I think you stole it. (laughs) And I said, well, okay, let's say that I didn't steal it. What would you think then? And he said, well, Dad, I would think it was fake money. Maybe you bought fake money, and you're playing a trick on me. I said, well, son, that's, that's the point. Even if he were to come down here and reveal himself, there are still 
people who would not believe it. I think you taught him a pretty good lesson. Taught us one, too, in the process. Were there believers before Jesus came? Yes. Yes, there were. John prepared the way. And, and they weren't even believing in Jesus per se because they didn't know anything about him. Was Noah a believer? Of course he was. Was Abraham a believer? We've got believers all down through time, and not all of these people, we are told, were witnesses to miraculous wonders. We just know they believed. And if a person is willing to, you can reason yourself into faith in God. When you, when you look at the creation, and this is what the scriptures tell us. The heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. The firmament does what? It shows us his handiwork. You would never look at a painting and go, boy, this is a wonderful accident. Well, some of them you would. But... But you would never look at a painting of a landscape and go, wow, that's, what kind of an accident created this? That's just insanity to even think that way. And so you look at the creation and you know there's got to be a God. And when you look at yourself, you think, wow, like David concluded, David didn't conclude it because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. How in the world can I see? How can I look out there and see you and my mind is telling, as soon as I see you, my mind is giving me information about you. Your name, where you live, where you're from, what our relationship has been through the years or through the weeks or however long it's been. And it tells me that too, how much time I've known you. And, and it'll even ask me questions and, and make moral uh, things. It'll, moral things will come like, why, why haven't you called? Oh, there's somebody you should have called them a few weeks ago. And that, this going, and it will, How does my mind do that? And I'm not even smart. I look at what smart people do. They put a man on the moon. How do you do that kind of math? I can't balance my checkbook. And they put a guy on the moon. Before computers became what computers are. And the best computer in the world can't even begin to do what you and I can do just with our mind. And birds fly and fish swim and they navigate and they go back to places. How in the world do they know how to get there? There's so many wonders in the world that tell us this. That you, you really, you'll think I'm being, uh, what's the word? You don't even need a Bible <laughs> to know there's a God. And that's what the scriptures, the Bible is telling us. You didn't need a Bible. Just look at the creation and you'll know. Don? Thank you. 
Right. One of the things I would go to here is Second Thessalonians, where he's talking about this. Oh man, how did how did that happen? This, I'm sorry. Right. Well, when I look at what it says here, what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, it says, uh, "Then that lawless one will be revealed." This is Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight. Lawless one will be revealed when the Lord will slay, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with activity, the activity of Satan with all power and signs and with false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I think that's the dividing line. Do we want truth? Do we love truth? Do we value truth? Just like Solomon said, buy the truth and don't do what? Don't sell it. Don't let it go for anything. You hold on to that. And that's what I think God is saying to the church at Thessalonica through Paul here. If you love the truth, you won't have to worry about this. Now, he might deceive the very elect, but the elect will have to be deceived into not valuing truth anymore. And I don't know about you, I I used to think that everything was totally objective, but now I don't think things are totally objective anymore. Here's, Here's what I mean by that. I don't like to live my life based on gut feelings, if you'll excuse the expression. But I've learned to trust gut feelings. You've got objective truth and you look at, well, I don't know if that lines up, but you know something even more, my, my gut's telling me, don't do that. Don't go there. And I, I don't know that my gut has ever led me wrong. And that's a safe thing to say scripturally because the uh, Bible says that your heart is deceitful. It doesn't say anything about your gut. So <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my out for that. But anyway... Uh, it is a serious thing to give up your love for the truth. And, and that's what's being talked about there. And, and these, we're talking about people, we're reading about people who are wrestling with this. Jesus said he would rise from the dead. And here he is. Do I believe this or do I not? And Jesus says, well, blessed are you for seeing it and believing it. But more blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. Let's finish up the worksheet here. Uh, John then records that blank other blanks were done. Many other signs were done by Jesus that were not written down, but those in this gospel were written so that the reader might believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? The word Christ, what does it mean? That's not his name. That's a title. Christ means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one of God. The equivalent word in Hebrew is Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same thing, just different languages. Jesus is the Christ, the blank of God, son of God, and that in believing they might have life in his 
name. There's power in the name of Christ. That's what Peter preached in Acts chapter 4. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. So I hope this morning's session has been beneficial to you. I sure do enjoy it. I'm going to be sad when this class is over, but uh, we'll just move on to something else. That's what we do, isn't it? All right. With a little more faith, hopefully. Anybody got anything as we close? Yes. I don't think all the events of his life. When you go back to Acts chapter 1, and, and this is where they're talking about that very thing. Who's going to take Judas's place? And it's not even, like, here's, here's a list of things you have to be and do. It's just almost stated offhand. How does it say here? Uh, verse 21 of Acts chapter 1. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there were other men besides the apostles who were in that group going around with Jesus as he would go from town to town and preach. And and they are saying here, we need to find somebody from this bunch of guys. And so they did. It's also interesting. Well, we'll talk about that another time. But that's good. good question. And this is where you find that right here in Acts chapter 1. This is a handy book to have. It answers a lot of questions. <laughs>